When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The Dow plunges 1,000 points, 3.5%, the worst drop in two years. We also have that not just contained in the U.S. The Japanese stock market opened at a negative 3%, and we have all across Europe stocks dropping 3 and 4%. So we're going to be taking a look at that. We also have Steve Eisman, this man right here, who I did a video on a couple months back. He was on TV explaining his short position on Tesla. So he was short on the stock, betting it would go down, and obviously Tesla went up quite a bit. So he must have been clobbered in that position, but we're going to look at this appearance now, him explaining himself and the situation that he's in. And we have my portfolio. We're going to be taking a look at my five biggest losers, the five companies that I've lost the most money with, as well as I have a lot of questions, the emails that we're going to be looking at at the end of the show. Now, first of all, let's jump into the market and see what's going on here. If I go over to the research tab, we can take a look at this again. The S&P 500 is down 3.35% today. The Dow Jones is down 3.54%. And the NASDAQ 100 is down 3.91%. All the articles, most of the news concerning this is around the coronavirus spreading. So that's the big uh, concern that investors have and the reason that they're attributing to this sell-off. So that is the main reason, but it's very difficult to tell if that is the only reason. There's other political events happening. There's always different things going on with the world at the same time, the same day. So it's difficult to assign all of this happening to a specific event. But either way, the biggest news right now is the coronavirus. Now, I take a look at my page and I look at the one day here. Anytime after a big sell-off, after big moves in the market, What I like to do is just log into my account, go to the one day view, and just try to assess the damage, right? I I look at it like we just had a plane wreck, and I'm one of the people going in, and I'm just assessing the damage, looking for the black box, trying to figure out why this thing went down, see if we can learn something from it, see where we're vulnerable and where we were strong, see where the errors happened. Now, the first thing I noticed is that my return for the day is much better than the general markets. So I'm down 1.43%, while the rest of the markets, like I just named off, are down over 3%, every one of them. So I'm down less than half of the market, which is a much lower beta rating for my portfolio, meaning it doesn't go up and down quite as much as the rest of the market. So that's the first thing that I confirm, is did my portfolio move more or less in the general market? Did I have bigger numbers? Was mine down more than 3%? Was it down 5 or 6% or was it down less? So This is something that you can look at both directions. If we're in the green, I don't want my portfolio to be lagging the general market when I'm in the green as much as I want it to be lagging it in the red. So the idea would be to have a portfolio that minimizes the losses when you go into the red, but also allows you to expand and and to grow when you're going into the green. So that's something very difficult to accomplish, but that's what we're trying to accomplish here. Now, if I go and I look at the actual breakdown of my portfolio here, we can see a more specific look at how things held up. I can see a natural drill down of what happened in my portfolio. Now, the first section here is bonds. It's a mixture of treasury bonds, U.S. investor grade bonds, and then international bonds. So companies outside of the U.S. That's what this section right here holds. Now, my question is, did this section of my portfolio do what it's supposed to? The whole purpose of bonds is to preserve your capital while giving you moderate returns. That's kind of the that's the main purpose of it. So if it traded down with everything else just as much, 
I would know it's not really following that purpose, that there's no reason to have bonds if they're not giving me the same returns as equities and they also have the same performance on down days. There's really no reason to hold them. But is that what happened? No, they're in the green. They're up 0.2%. Why everything else in my portfolio is in the red. So the bonds did exactly what they're supposed to. Real estate also was not hit hard in this. 0.49%. That's way better than the rest of the market right now. Finance got hit just about as much as the rest of the market. The companies that I chose in the weighting of it got hit a little bit less, so 2.94%. That's pretty good for finance. Utilities, again, this one was pretty solid, down 0.59%. That's way better than the rest of the market. Then we have healthcare, down 2.39%. Again, better than the rest of the market, but not great. Consumer was down quite a bit, 3.22%. That's basically what everything was down. So these companies like Disney and Costco and Target and Nike, these were down just as much. We have telecom holding a little bit steadier down nearly 1%. So about a third to a fourth of what the rest of the market was. Industrials down 2.28%, a little bit better, but not much better. Tech, 4.5%. Tech went down way more than the rest of the market. So the fact that I have 3% in tech minimize my losses today. So tech is generally a more volatile, growth-oriented industry. And so I have a little bit smaller portion in this, but this is just how it trades. It goes up more on the up days, it goes down more on the down days. So it's down 4.5% right now. And then last but not least, we have energy, which is down 4.23%, a little bit more than the rest of the market. Energy in general just has not been doing good lately. So the question is, what can we learn from this? Looking at your portfolio, It's a difference between your expectations and reality. That's what you should be looking at. So I have a portfolio that right at the bottom, the description is a portfolio focused on defensive and passive income. That's the focus of it. It's a defensive portfolio. Now I look at this and I say, was it defensive today? Did it do a little bit better during a really harsh trading session? Yes, it did much better. So the expectation and reality both match with this portfolio. It's performing how I expect it to. If today my portfolio went down 3.5% with the rest of the market, I would know that there's something wrong with my portfolio because I'm wanting it to be more defensive and it's actually just as vulnerable as the rest of the market. So that would be a difference in expectations reality. Right now it's performing just as expected. Now it seems like whenever this type of thing happens, where we have a down day of 3 to 4%, anything like that, I get a lot of emails and questions of people saying, what should I do? Should I stay in the market? My portfolio went down. Should I sell out now? You know, what should I do? This is a common question for new investors. Here's some advice from Howard Marks. So the, the, the investor and the viewer should ask himself, can I strap myself in and stick around for 10 years, regardless of what happens tomorrow, over the next month, over the next year? And it, that's, that's called being an investor and not what I would call a trader. Now, I think Howard Marks is spot on. If you're an investor, you should be fine with these down days because your outlook is five to 10 years. No matter what type of scary stuff we have going on in the world, you need to view it like you're on the executive board of these companies. You have real ownership in them. You're an owner of these companies. Are you going to exit your positions, leave the executive board, leave your job because we have one down day in the market? That's not what you do with a normal job, not if you had real ownership in a company. So you need to mentally view it the same way. You own these companies. You have a stake in these companies. So if you're an owner of them, are you going to exit and sell out of your ownership if things look a little rough one day? So for me, this is just another reminder that stocks can go up or down. 
And for my portfolio, I don't really care. Mine's based off of passive income. So market fluctuations isn't something that I really concern myself with too much. I look at this and in the past week, my capital gains are down. Like I say, these are something that can go up and down anytime. It's based off of what other people value your companies, not how they're actually performing. So that is tied together over time. But in the short term, investors can do whatever they want. They can sell out of good companies and they can sell out of bad companies. And in this decline that was down 3.5% in the markets, investors were not discerning between which company to sell. They just sold all of them. Was every company in danger with the fears that are going on right now? Was every company really at risk? Investors sold all of them across the board. I can look at this board here, which is a map of the S&P 500, and the redder that the company is, the more they sold out of it. Everything is in the red. Did all of these companies that do business all across the world become less valuable today? Is that really what happened? Or did investors get bad headlines and, and sell out of companies without having any discernment, any level of critical analysis of which ones they want to hold, which ones they want to keep? A lot of them just have ETFs and they sold out of the entire market. So I don't really look at this and get too concerned about it. In the meantime, I'm earning dividends. I've earned $70.95 in dividends in the past five days. That gets added to my cash balance. Today, I put in another $500 into my portfolio and bought when things were down a bit in my portfolio. So I'm taking advantage of this as much as I can. If things continue to fall, I'll continue to keep buying. Okay, now moving on, let's take a look at my biggest losers. If I go to my holdings page here, I can take a look at all my companies. It has a list of all of them in a linear list like you see on most traditional brokers. But what I can do is I can organize them by my unrealized gain or my unrealized losses. Now, I'll go ahead and organize it by my biggest losers. Coming in at number one, we have Simon Property. This is the company that I've lost the biggest dollar amount since investing in it because it's just in a tough situation. I've talked about this in previous videos. Simon Property is the biggest mall owner in the world. And as we know, malls are taking on fierce competition from Amazon and other online shopping. That is a growing portion of how people shop. And it's left a lot of investors to believe that there's no place for malls anymore. So this has been a difficult thing for Simon Property. They're having to evolve their locations. I'm personally bullish on Simon Property, but I'm not bullish enough to put a huge amount of money in them. So right now I have about $2,600 invested. I'm down $376. So I've lost a little bit of money with them, but I'm continuing to hold. Coming in at number two for my biggest losers is Pfizer. This is a pharmaceutical company. They make lots of drugs and vaccines and those type of products. Now, this company, I don't think there's anything wrong with it. I don't think there's anything bad about the company per se. I just happened to buy it at one of the worst times. It was trading very highly and I bought it when it was a little bit overvalued. So it's come down a bit and I've lost $183 in it. Now my number three and number four biggest loser, I will group them together because they are both oil companies. Everybody knows that uh, oil companies have not been doing good. Now, I think this is a mixture of the price of oil. I don't know this industry too well. So this is an industry I have very little exposure to. I have less than 1% of my money in oil. And part of that is because I don't feel super confident in evaluating these companies. I rely a lot on other people's analysis, researching other things, but I personally don't have a, a strong grasp on how to evaluate these. So I'm slowly minimizing my position in them because it's an industry that I don't know much about, and it's an industry I'm not interested to learn too much about. So that combination makes it so that it's out of my area of competence. I want to minimize my exposure to it. And as you can see, I've been in the red on both of these companies. With ExxonMobil, I'm in the red 158 bucks. With Chevron, I'm in the red $79. I have not had good luck with oil. I think on top of the, the normal cycles that these companies go through that are making the price go down, there's also quite a bit of negative stigma about oil. It's just something where... A lot of people don't even want to be associated with it. They're pressuring a lot of big 
institutional investors to move away from oil. So I just see it as a difficult industry to invest in right now, even though we're relying on their products to to have our energy right now. So interesting situation to be in, but I'm in the red on both of these. I have very little amounts of money in them. I'm continuing to hold them and have their dividends be dispersed into other companies. So I'm not actually investing in these companies right now. I'm more just holding them and having every single dividend be pushed into different companies. And coming in at number five of my biggest loser is a stock that needs no introduction. We have Boeing. This is a company that when I first started my series, I referenced Boeing as a type of company that I thought nothing could go wrong with. That's my opinion I had of it. I thought it was such a solid holding. They're somewhat backed by the US government. They're a duopoly. Their only competitor has just as many back orders as they have. And so I looked at this as a company that I thought there's really not much that can go wrong with it. And then you can see what happens. They have these two plane crashes, this horrific news. And ever since then, it's only been more and more bad news. So this goes to show that no matter how much analysis you do on a company or whatever way you feel about it, it's always good to have diversification. Because even though I made this call wrong with Boeing that I thought was a very solid holding that not much could happen to, I'm okay. I don't have too much money in this one company. I was in the green by quite a bit a, a while back, but either way, this is a company that continues to pay its dividend. I think the planes will eventually get back in the air. So we'll see if there's any upside to this, but right now I'm fine just holding it. So that's it. That's my five biggest losers. I have the real estate company, Simon Property, the pharmaceutical company, Pfizer, the two oil companies, ExxonMobil and Chevron and Boeing. Those are the companies I've lost the most money with. Next up, I have to mention this. We have Steve Eisman here, who, again, if you're not familiar with him, he was the guy that was played by Steve Carell in the movie The Big Short. So he shorted a lot of the U.S. banks and made a lot of money doing that. Well, his next short target was Tesla. That was one of the companies that he was shorting. I believe the other one was Zillow. So I'm not sure how the Zillow one has turned out. But the Tesla one, obviously, that company has gone up in value a lot, not gone down in value. So I'm excited to hear Steve Eisman's thoughts on how this is all played out. Steve, let me cut to the chase. Are you still short Tesla? I covered a while ago. How did you cover? What was the decision tree to, to make that decision? Look, everybody has a pain threshold. And, you know, when a stock becomes unmoored from valuation because it has certain dynamic growth aspects to it and has cult-like aspects to it, you have to just walk away. So there he says he's covered the short, meaning he's exited that position. He doesn't mention when he fully exited the position. My guess is that he lost a lot of money with this short because Tesla went up a lot and it went up very fast. So unless he exited right at the beginning of that streak upwards, he probably lost a ton of money with this position. He also mentions that there's aspects of this company that it's a cult stock that people want to follow it and want to be owners of it, regardless of the specific situation. I think that this is obviously true. I look at Tesla and I've said that it's a cult stock for a while. People see it as the future. And how do you put a price tag on the future? That's the way a lot of people are looking at it. So the current valuation of it, even if it seems really high, some people think that it will be worth 10 times more in the future. So it just depends on who you're talking to and whether they see Tesla as a bigger part of the future. Now, they know he's exited the position, but they ask why it went up so much in value. Why did Tesla increase in value so much over the past couple months? So this is a question that actually a lot of people have been looking into and trying to find out the exact reason. It's very difficult to point it to one exact reason. It's difficult to tell. But here's what Eisman says on the subject. I don't have a why. I mean, sometimes there's no why. We booked you for the why. I don't have a why. <laughs> uh, you look at Sometimes things are not can't be explained that well. And... If you're short, you got to walk away. There's, there's no glory in losing money. 
So he has no clue why Tesla went up in value. I imagine if he did, he wouldn't have been short the company to begin with. But the next question they ask him is the difference between General Motors, GM, and Tesla. Because Steve Eisman has a long position on GM. He's the owner of it. And obviously, he's very bearish on Tesla. Well, Tesla is a dream about you know, Tesla conquering electronic vehicles, which I don't think is right. I think the other auto companies will uh, are starting to come out with... Um, electronic vehicles it'll be competitive so he portrays tesla conquering electronic vehicles as a dream that's the way he portrays it and i do think it's funny he uses the term electronic vehicles instead of electric vehicles that's what everybody calls it is electric vehicles but either way i don't see it as a dream that tesla might be the leader in this field they've invested in this area for a long time their whole company is set up specifically for electric vehicles they have a lot of centers mass producing these cars and i think that they're ahead of the competition right now so we look at a lot of traditionally really high quality car companies most of them i think are in europe and japan so you have volkswagen bmw you have japanese companies like subaru toyota honda And these are great car companies, but from what I've seen, they haven't put nearly the level of investment into electric vehicles and battery technology that Tesla has. So I don't think it's unrealistic to think that Tesla might come out the leader with this. Now, the next part of this, he says what companies he thinks is actually leading the race to self-driving. I mean, the, the two leaders apparently autonomous driving today are not Tesla or, or, or Google and GM. You heard it there. He doesn't think it's Tesla. He thinks it's Google and GM leading the race to autonomous vehicles. Okay, let's get to some emails. Joseph Carlson Show at gmail.com. That's Joseph Carlson Show at gmail.com if you'd like to email in your questions. The first one says, hello, Joseph. I like your show and enjoy watching it. I understand your argument about why you think technical analysis is practically useless. I know you didn't express it that way. You should factor in technical analysis is used by many people, and if many people use it, it will affect the market. For example, if many people find an obvious pattern and then sell their stock because it was a bad pattern, it will affect the stock price. Yet technical analysis has use. You might have heard of Jim Simmons and the Renaissance Medallion Fund. He and the fund uses some sort of technical analysis with combinations with quantitative models and systemic trading. It has greatly outperformed Warren Buffett, the S&P 500, George Soros, and Ray Dalio. The fund is the best fund in the history and only trades on mathematical models. Since 1988, the Medallion Fund has generated average annual returns of 66%, which is way better than any other investor. Simmons and his staff focus their computers on discovering outlook, repeating short-term patterns in the stock market. They generally hold shares for a couple of days, avoiding longer-term trades. You can earn money on other ways other than just long-term dividend investing. All right. Well, I appreciate the email. I think it's a fair question here, a fair criticism. You say at the end of it that you can earn money on other ways than just long-term dividend investing. So I agree with that 100%. I've never made it my goal to say that dividend investing is the supreme form of investing and the only way that you can earn money. I've never said that before and have even suggested that before. In fact, quite the opposite. Through lots of my videos, I talk about the fact that there's a lot of ways to generate wealth in this world. There's lots of forms of investing and strategies that you can pursue. Not only dividend investing, but there's growth investing, there's value. People also invest in real estate and earn wealth that way. There's a lot of ways that have been proven to generate a lot of wealth over long periods of time. So I'm not against anybody else pursuing different ways to earn money. I've never made it my goal to say this is the one and only way and you shouldn't even look at other ways. Now, I will say that I think I did a poor job in representing my views on technical analysis. So 
Most of my criticism was focused on technical analysis in conjunction with very short-term trading. So people that buy into and exit positions the same day, interday trades, this type of thing going on, and a lot of content creators using it as a means to sell some type of sales funnel or sales course. That's something that I don't really feel comfortable saying that most people are going to be successful doing, that type of thing. Looking at technical analysis on a broader scale, looking at bigger market trends and using statistics that I've worked in the past to be able to make informed decisions on the market, a lot of that can be grouped together in technical analysis, but we're talking about a very wide picture here. So my criticism is very segmented to one specific part of this. It's not the broader outlook of it. Looking back at past trends that have happened over time, that's never going to be something that I'm critical of. So I can give you an example of other investors that also are critical of the same thing that I am that are also open to looking at stats. We can take a look at Peter Lynch here. Here's a clip from a Peter Lynch lecture that he gave in 1994. The math is simple. There's been 93 years a century. This is easy to do. The market's had 50 declines of 10% or more. So 50 declines in 93 years, about once every two years, the market falls 10%. We call that a correction. That means that's a euphemism for losing a lot of money rapidly, but we, you know, we call it a correction. And uh, uh, so 50 declines in 93 years, about once every two years, the market falls 10%. Of those 50 declines, 15 have been 25% or more. That's known as a bear market. We've had 15 declines in 93 years. So every six years, the market's going to have a 25% decline. That's all you need to know. You need to know the market's going to go down sometime. If you're not ready for that, you shouldn't own stocks. So what Peter Lynch said here, I think this all could be grouped into technical analysis. What he did was he looked at historical trends with the market and he extrapolated out into the future to be able to have a more informed and aware decision making in the future. This isn't the type of thing that I was trying to criticize. So this part of technical analysis, I think, is actually very useful. The part that I have a a concern about is very short-term trading, the way that it's used in conjunction with interday trades when you're competing with hedge funds that have advanced algorithms and you're competing with high-frequency traders. I think it's a very uphill battle. And only a few people that are extremely good at it are going to come out on top, while the people that aren't quite as good are going to struggle. So that's my main point of concern on this subject. Now, having said all of that, I will address some of the main points that you bring up in the email. You mentioned Jim Simmons, who I am familiar with. In fact, at the end of every episode, I show this screen right here, and it has a lot of different amazing investors on it. One of them at the very top left there, that is Jim Simmons. So he is featured at the end of every single one of my episodes. Now, there's a difference, though. You got to acknowledge some of the differences here. Jim Simmons is a mathematical genius. This is a guy that helped contribute to string theory. So that's the type of person we're talking about here. He didn't look at a company's chart and try to match a pattern to that company. He created an algorithm that feeds millions of pieces of data to come up with advanced pattern recognition. He created such a uniquely amazing tool for analysis that like you mentioned, nobody has ever been able to match his performance. So that's the type of person we're talking about here with the Renaissance Medallion Fund. In fact, we can look at a TED Talk. This is an interview with Jim Simmons sharing his thoughts on this very subject. So he gets asked a lot of different questions about the same things that you're talking about here. One of them is about pattern recognition with charts. He's asked about it in this example here. Trend following would have been great in the 60s and it was sort of okay in the 70s. By the 80s, it wasn't such a didn't Because everyone could consider it. So so how did you... 
So right there, Jim Simmons acknowledges that technical analysis, at least in the form of trend following, was something more valid in prior decades than it is now. He says in the 60s, it was a good form of analysis. In the 70s, it was okay. And in the 80s, not so much. That was the point he's making. And then he's asked specifically, what are you doing right now to stay ahead of the pack? The way that he says that he stays ahead of the pack is by data, having a lot of data. But the, the real thing was to gather a tremendous amount of data. And, and uh, we had to get it by hand in the early days. We went down to the Federal Reserve and copied interest rate histories and stuff like that because it didn't exist on computers. We, we got a lot of data and very smart people. And uh, that, was the, that was the key. Now, this is the point that I want to make, that Jim Simmons says that he looks at data to get the advantage in how he's able to perform well. So that's how his fund is able to perform so well. So how much data does he look at? Well, he answers that question right here. Well, everything. I mean, everything is grist for the mill, uh, whether uh, annual reports, monthly, quarterly reports, uh, the historic data itself, volumes, you name it, whatever there is. We take in terabytes of data a day and uh, store it away and massage it and get it ready for analysis. So he says he takes in terabytes of data a day and they look for anomalies with it. They look for patterns based off of their algorithms that they developed. They bring that data in and they massage it and normalize it. And they use their analysis based off of that data. So again, you can use Jim Simmons as an example of technical analysis. Sure, I, you know it's a valid strategy in the way that he's using it. But can we take what he's doing and apply it to our investment strategy? I think that that's a little bit of a leap. I don't know how I would be able to use what Jim Simmons is doing where he runs this private fund with this private algorithm he's developed with terabytes and terabytes of data that looks through all this stuff for pattern recognition, where he can get these tremendous results. I don't know how we can apply that to ourselves. I don't know how to take that and say, well, now I can go and I can earn money based off of what he's doing. So I see what you're saying. He does these technical analysis, but I think the application of it in this instance is a little bit different, and I don't see it as widely applicable to everyday investors. Okay, Doc says, Joseph, I really like your show and listen to it every week. I learn a lot and agree with most of your advice. However, after spending 38 years in the petroleum business, I think that your assessment of oil is not entirely correct. While there may be some minor effects in sentiment against fossil fuels, a primary driver of oil stock over the long term is the price of oil. Oil is a commodity and the price is driven by the supply and demand worldwide. In the last 10 to 15 years, the fracking industry has increased the production of oil in the USA so that the USA is the number one oil producer in the world in 2019. This has the effect of removing much of the power of OPEC to dictate or maintain a high price, maintaining the world's supply and keeping the prices lower. You will notice there is usually a spike in oil and oil stock prices when there's trouble in the Middle East, such as the bombing of the Saudi pipeline. The large oil companies have many exploration and producing assets around the world that are very extensive to explore and produce, sometimes billions of dollars or 10 or so years to bring to production. These assets usually cannot be turned off or suspended during oil price dips without losing them or severely diminishing their value. I think the role of sentiment in oil stock prices is minor. Keep up the good work, Doc. Okay, Doc. Well, I appreciate you writing in. So thanks for the email. Typically, this is where I'd go into the the different points that I have and, and the different parts I disagree with you on. But I just agree with your email. So I think that you make a solid point. I don't think that the primary driver of how these oil stocks are doing is sentiment. So I don't think that that's the biggest factor playing into it. You're probably right that the huge majority of it has to do with the price of oil right now and the lower demand of it. 
I will say, though, over the past few years, it does, at least to me, seem like a substantial negative sentiment has taken place with oil companies. So I think it is something to factor in when you're entering into these investments. Might not be the biggest factor, but it's another complicated factor when you're looking at these companies is that they do have a growing negative sentiment towards them. I can look at this article from the Financial Times that says BlackRock shakes up business to focus on sustainable investing. And in this, they describe all their efforts to move away from oil companies and coal companies into renewable energy. They say BlackRock has unveiled sweeping changes in an effort to position itself as the leader in sustainable investing after criticism that the company has failed to use its clout to combat climate change. So we can see that at least BlackRock, they're changing some of their policy and the way that they invest based off of criticisms that they've received for putting too much money into these oil companies, these coal companies. So Is this the biggest factor? Is this what really is driving the performance of these different companies? I don't think so. I think you're right in saying that that the majority factor is the price of oil, their commodities, and that's how these companies are doing. So I agree. I think majority of it is determined by the price of oil, but I also will factor in that there's a growing negative sentiment towards these companies. So I think that's something to consider when you're making these investments. Tam says, hey, Joseph, I love the show. I'm currently working in Asia and the stocks have taken some hits amongst the coronavirus concerns. Your show is what's keeping me through it, allowing me to see the long term goal of my portfolio and disregard any panic associated with some red in the markets. I appreciate you saying that. He says, with regards to dividends, M1 Finance will auto reinvest any that you receive with brokers in Asia. Most haven't developed this functionality yet, meaning that any dividend I receive will only pool up in cash. In this case, do you have any advice on how I can reinvest the money without timing the market? Appreciate your time in responding. Thanks. Yeah, so I get this question pretty frequently because M1 Finance has a pretty unique way of reinvesting your dividends. It breaks them up into fractional shares and then it invests in companies that are underweight in your portfolio. So most other brokers really don't have this functionality. Even within the US, a lot of brokers don't have this functionality. So some of them have drip investing, but that's really not the same thing. In your case, if you don't have access to a broker like M1 and yours just piles up in cash, what I would do is I would make a habit to invest once a month. I would let that money pile up in cash. And then at the end of the month, I would go through your holdings and try to figure out which one is the most undervalued. So you can do things like compare the current dividend yield to the historical five-year yield. You can compare the PE ratio of one company compared to others in the sectors. You can do different types of research to try to find what company you think is the best investment at the time and put all the money that you've earned for the month in that company. And then every single month, just do the same thing and group that up with your new deposits. So as you're putting more money into your portfolio, group that up with your dividends and buy more shares of one company every single month. So I think that that's a really good workaround. I think that you'll have really good results there and you'll have the same feeling of constantly being reinvested. So if you're doing it once a month, that's still pretty frequent. It's not the same as M1 where I'm investing multiple times a week, but really once a month is pretty frequent and that will accomplish relatively the same thing. Okay, well, I think that that's all the questions I'm going to take for this episode. But if you guys like the content, be sure to subscribe, be sure to like the video, share it with other people, all that good stuff. And I will see you guys next time.